Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast. I'm David Gadali and this is episode 6. My guest today is Andy Cochran. He is a director, content creator, and a pioneer in the world of immersive media, who has become one of the few go-to guys for big brands who are looking to experiment with emerging mediums like virtual reality, augmented reality, interactive video, and pretty much any conceptual endeavor that stretches the boundaries of what we know as traditional digital media. He worked on projects for IBM, Intel, Google, LG, the USA series, Mr. Robot, and recently for the city of Las Vegas. These projects range from virtual reality experiences to installations, live events, and mobile and web apps. What all of them have in common is that they're all essentially technical experiments, requiring a good amount of research and development, and offer the excitement of uncertainty and reward of discovery. Prior to that, he worked for the VFX company Mirada, where he transitioned from a visual effects person to the vague title of Digital Interactive Director. In this episode, we talk primarily about emerging digital mediums, mostly virtual reality, and Andy's realistic viewpoint on the future of that technology, both near and far. We also talk about what attracts Andy to these kinds of projects versus more traditional VFX work for big blockbusters, and what he thinks has happened in the last few decades to the filmmaking dream. A quick warning that in this episode, we mention a few technical terms related to virtual reality without explaining them. You should be able to guess what they mean from the context of the conversation, but I'll put some links in the episode's description just in case. Last thing, if you like this podcast, feel free to let me know. Leave written comments on whatever social network you found this on, and I especially want to hear suggestions on how to improve it or who to invite as a future guest on the show. And with this, I give you episode six of the Post Post Podcast. I mean, you're a filmmaker, I guess, at the at the core, right? What what uh, have you always dreamt of being in film, and kind of what what's your background? Yeah. Um, so the, the kind of the two minute version is I went to film school. I wanted to direct movies. Um, I went to USC for production. And when I graduated, uh, the first sort of job that I got in the industry was, uh, was in VFX. Um, and even though I hadn't studied VFX, I learned after effects and sort of knew the basics. Um, but just kind of fell into VFX, um, and worked on a bunch of movies and, and, you know, did, uh, did a lot of CG stuff, um, kind of kept changing specialties. Um, <laughs> kind of everything I did was outsourced about two years after I did it. So I was a tracker back when 3d tracking was really hard and now that's really easy. And I was, there was, uh, did a lot of particles work, did a lot of fluid work, um, you know, just kind of a lot of CG and, 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 uh, and VFX in general. And then um, that's what I was doing by day, but by sort of nights and weekends, I was first running a really high-tech improv comedy troupe um, in wow. Hollywood. We were doing shows with like live green screen and uh, it's like CG puppets and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and what year was that? So we started... The idea of it was in 2002 and we started doing shows in, I want to say 2004 and we were kind of done by like 2006. And the reason we stopped was we would put our videos 
of, you know, clips from our shows online. And, you know, this was pre YouTube. It was back when, you know, like 2000 hits was enormous. Um, and, uh, you know, we would kill ourselves to put on these crazy elaborate shows and, you know, 30 people would show up and then we'd put a clip on the internet and a couple thousand people would watch it. And so we, we transitioned into making, um, making videos for the web but we were kind of too early on that one. So, you know, there was no money in that either. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was really fun and, and really rewarding, but definitely not sort of a career path. Um, and so I kind of always had that as a hobby, but kept with the VFX. Um, and then in 2010, um, I ended up as a freelancer at Motion Theory, and then uh, Motion Theory became Murata when Guillermo del Toro and Guillermo Navarro joined uh, forces with them. And they took what was sort of a motion graphics and design um, sort of commercial music video house, and they expanded their focus massively to be, you know, feature film and, uh, and TV, not just VFX, but, you know, design and front end creative. Um, and then they, slapped the word transmedia on the, on the door and um, nobody really knew uh, it, you know, I'm not saying Murata didn't know. Nobody knew the industry did not know what uh, transmedia actually was. Um, and I sort of found myself being the only person in the building that had ever done anything live or interactive or, you know, using technology in weird ways. So I sort of became the weird stuff guy. Um, and <laughs> how did, how do you explain it? I mean, what, what made you kind of, um, what attracted you to that or, or what made you the go-to guy when it came to that, uh, you know, transition? I've always, I mean, all the way back to being a kid, I've always sort of loved technology. And I think the reason that I was good in VFX was the same thing that attracted me to sort of the weird stuff which is yeah. just using technology to create some kind of experience. And like, I, I don't think that, you know, the stuff that I'm doing nowadays, a lot of VR and AR and more immersive content, I don't think that it's a departure from anything else that I've done. Like I, I think they're all on a continuum. And so I don't know. I, I don't know that it was that I was the only person in the building with the right training. I think it was that I was just willing to put my, my hand up when these weird projects came in and we did, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, we made, uh, Rome with Chris milk, which was the first sort of use of, of, uh, WebGL when it first, when it first came out. Um, and we did massive installation for IBM and projection mapping for UCLA and, uh, mobile apps and and tablets, tablet apps, and you know all kinds of stuff that sort of falls outside of traditional VFX or design. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I just kind of ran ran anytime a project came in that was weird. I was generally the <laughs> the, the guy running it, um, and that gave me sort of a really rare um, opportunity that I, I think. I think everybody working in VFX wants to work in the movies, uh, you know, at, at least those who are working in feature film VFX. And I think all of us had the same realization about four or five years in that 
VFX is not part of the film industry. It's a vendor that services the, the film industry. Right. So w- when you work in VFX, you don't spend your day hanging out with directors and producers and writers and editors, and they don't ask you if you've got any great ideas for a movie. Um, they don't know who you are. <laughs> they, they literally don't know you exist. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think my time in VFX is what made me able to work in the, this new sort of immersive landscape but in terms of skill you mean and and like and kind of- skill absolutely yeah and, and mentality and you know uh like problem solving uh ability because uh, you know there's a lot of problem solving oh yeah <laughs> endless <laughs> way more than i mean I, I find it like one of the most attracting parts of in in vr i've had a little bit of experience in vr so far in the last like two three years uh is the fact that it's like uh it kind of brings me back to the days where nothing worked you know i, I had to yeah. click you know i had to like you know, spend hours just to get, you know, getting one thing done as, whereas now it's like, you know, I know the tools and, and the tools have evolved to the point where they're reacting faster. Um, and I haven't really felt that kind of sense of, of dread and, and kind of ex- excitement when something actually works after, you know, after breaking for, you know, days at a time, uh, until I, I went back to VR and I had to do like an 8K, you know, video or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly everything breaks and you're not even expecting it. So, I mean, if, you know, some people hate it, I I like the challenge and I like overcoming challenges. You know, I, I get, you know, I get, so I, f- I feel like that's what something that VR really, you know, brings to the table, <laughs> whether it's a good or bad thing, but like, it's definitely, you know, brings me back to those old days. Oh, absolutely. It- and there's there's a there's an element of you know I worked a, bu- a bunch in features and I always got really bored like extremely bored and my f- my favorite part of a feature was the first month when you're figuring out sort of you know the pipeline and the approach and testing things out and and sort of just figuring out what we're going to be doing for the next year and a half and then once that's all figured out it's sort of, you know, okay, well don't change anything and just do exactly what we decided we we're going to do 200 times. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Once you got the pipeline figured out, it's, you know, it's really just punching in, you know, the numbers and kind of letting, I mean, not, not to undermine anything, you know, the hardworking artists that, that, you know, put their work into it, but like it is repetitive at the, at, at a point is uh, from a technical standpoint, from, you know, problem yeah. solving standpoint. Um, I wanted to actually ask you like you you mentioned in the brief kind of background what led you into into vr and visual effects uh it's interesting that you actually started out as a film student you didn't actually like go out to 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 excel in the vfx industry and it kind of you know ended up there um and i guess that kind of tells a a little bit about you as a person like you know most people go to film school they either, you know, end up being filmmakers or screenwriters or, you know, cinematographers, you know, very few that I know, at least, because I went to film school too, um, you know, ended up in, you know, in post or or at least definitely in visual effects. So it's just such a technically kind of intense uh, uh, field that, you know, uh, so I find it interesting. And then also the fact that you've done these, uh, you know, web videos and you were like ahead of your time you know like it's it's one of the most people i speak to are always kind of regretting being you know uh being late to the wag and you feel it seems like you're you're regretting being too early to the you know to the oh, totally <laughs> totally 
No, I mean, we got like in 2006, 2007, we, we were front paged on YouTube all the time. We knew, you know, the editors at, at, at pretty much every way, every major website, most of which are still, you know, are gone now. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's every once in a while you run into somebody that was there in, in 05, 06, 07, 08. And it's, it's funny cause it's, it's, there's not a lot of people that were working in web back then that stayed working in web. Um, right. you know, a lot of people sort of moved on and, um, you know, and then in came the PewDiePie's of the world, the, <laughs> the, the folks that actually made money, but you know, it was, it was exciting. I, when VR started, I got really excited because the community in, in particular in Los Angeles, but it's definitely a global community, um, is very similar to the community that sprung up around web video. Um, in, especially in Los Angeles. Los Angeles had this, you know, really tight-knit community of creators that um, were not YouTubers. They weren't, they, weren't, um, they weren't faces and names. They were creators. And so it was, it was like a weird indie film kind of community where instead of making indie movies, we were making web videos. And um, when VR started... I, you know, I immediately f- sort of recognized something that I kind of yearned for and, and, and lamented and was sad when it, it went away or when I had to leave it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like VR is, VR is like web video in the early days, but with money. And by that, I mean, there's money to actually do things and to, you can actually have it be your day job instead of, when web video started, it was something that only sort of 20 somethings, you know, and, and teenagers could do because there wasn't, you know, it took a lot of time and there was no money. Um, so it's, it's in a lot of ways, VR has kind of felt like coming home in a weird way of, of just kind of, it's, it's pulled a lot of stuff that I would have previously called a hobby and pulled it all together into, you know, something into a, if not a career, at least a day job, (laughs) something that I can actually, you know, spend my days focusing on. And that's been really rewarding and exciting. And, and that feeling of sort of, I've, you know, for years I've had that feeling of, I really screwed up my career by going into VFX. Like I really, really, yeah. And not that I hated my time in VFX, but just not, not realizing when I started that I wasn't sort of building a career sort of being really good at VFX doesn't uh, a, it doesn't prepare you to be a director in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it does if you're going to be like an animation director, but it, you don't have interface with writers or editors, producers, actors, Um, you know, it's, you're not part of the world. Um, And so web video was sort of my way to, keep those chops, um, you know, keep those skills honed, but VFX, you know, it, it helped me with all the computer stuff, but it, it certainly did not help me, um, learn how to tell a story. You know, I, I think there's a lot of VFX folks that are good storytellers and are good, um, you know, creatives outside of the technical, but I think VFX in and of itself does not exercise those talents and that, 
in general, you know, if you know somebody in VFX who's also a director, they're probably doing it in their spare time, you know, or they're, you know, there's a lot of nights and weekends or taking a month off between gigs. Um, right. And when you say VFX, you, know, you mean, you mean being like a, uh, a desktop or employee in a, in a big VFX company, I'm assuming, or even as a VFX supervisor? You know, I, for sure, being a supervisor gets you on set and gets you interfacing. And, you know, I, I, Murata was a really unique uh, opportunity for me in that not only do they have these weird projects that um, I was able to run and and really sort of exercise that part of my brain beyond sort of the technician, um, right. but it also you know, I, I did a lot of VFX supervision on more traditional projects as well and had much, you know, much better, um, interface with that side of things. And Murata has a, 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 you know, a pretty good track record of giving people shots at, you know, if not directing something, you know, sort of stepping outside of their normal, their normal, uh, lane. Um, right. you know, and so, I, I definitely, I was there for six years and, and in that time sort of was able to transition out of VFX and I don't mean leave it behind, but, um, you know, basically do enough to be, to be able to sort of, you know, say I am a director and not just, right. I want to be a director, but you know, I am a director. And then right around that time when VR hit and the term director doesn't really apply anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> even better now you're just a creator right yeah so now i'm a multi-hyphenate uh title-less uh guy who knows a lot of stuff about tech and and creative and can creative technical <laughs> uh you know it, it, it's what like consultant or yeah. technologist technologist yeah. right technologist is definitely so there was like a moment like two years ago or maybe longer than that it was probably more three or four years ago the term creative technologist came up and, and it was like, yes, yes, that's it. That, it, that, <laughs> yes, that's it. And then immediately it turned into sort of like a creative technologist is kind of like a man bun hipster that knows how to code a oh, little no. bit and, <laughs> and like is completely irresponsible and, you know, is probably going to like ruin your project. So how did that happen so quickly? <laughs> <laughs> it happened so fast. You know, I mean, it was like the term transmedia, burn you know that went down in flames almost instantly and creative technologists did the same and so it's like so i've just oh, you know I, I my title changes a lot um and i've just kind of stopped caring about title and you know um like it's it's less important that i have the title director and more important that um that i get to sort of have have influence over it's not a control thing like i don't i don't actually subscribe to the auteur theory of of sort of the monolithic you know creator director i think it's a team sport and you know especially in in the immersive side you, you've got some game people you've got some vfx people you've got some live action people you've got you know writers and editors and producers and sort of everybody's experience matters but their, right. their ego certainly does not. So, but it seems like you, there, you know, so far in our conversation, it seems like one thing that drives you um, and that kind of led, kind of steered you through your journey was, uh, was your passion with, pro with problem solving and like uh, 
out of the box thinking and and uh, and just kind of this. I mean, you went through a pretty non-traditional path, I would say. You know, you you know, you, you were in the VFX machine, but you've always seemed seems to have, you know, been attracted to to other things, to challenges. You know, uh, like you say, like the two or three months, you know, at the beginning of a project where things have to be solved and things like that. And then on the other hand, you have the, I guess, creative, you know, being having your hands on the, I guess on the steering wheel, whether it's like, you know, from coming from an ego, ego, like uh, place or, or just from uh, a pure kind of passion with storytelling or with, and with uh, the creative process. Um, it's interesting. I guess there was, do, would you say those two are kind of go hand in hand in a way in, in your mind or uh, are they just two, two facets of your personality that just coexist? I, I mean, definitely problem solving is something that I like. I'm a, I'm an information just sponge. I, you know, I, I, I love sort of knowing how things work and, you know, reading about solutions to problems I've never had. (laughs) And just, you know, I'm fascinated by, I'm fascinated by sort of technology and how it works and taking it apart and seeing sort of, you know, where it's good, where it's bad and just putting all that on a shelf. And, and then I've just, you know, throughout my career, even in VFX, you know, the solution to most problems is, is experience or, you know, something, it's either your own experience or somebody else's experience that you read about. It's, it's rare that you encounter a problem that has never been encountered before. And so, you know, the, I always loved in VFX that sort of aha moment of, you know, either solving it or, you know, remembering that you know you've had this problem before and and how how you fixed it last time and you know i i've always loved that and i think that part of my brain is is active when you know i'm writing a script it's active when i'm on set blocking something or you know watching a scene and trying to sort of you know figure out if it's working and if it's not what the solution is so i'm definitely i'm definitely sort of a a problem solver mentality um, and taking that into that's definitely what guided me through all this stuff through VFX, through the improv, you know, I, I, the improv stuff was insane. The stuff we were doing was nuts. We, we put together a live TV broadcast studio every weekend in a improv theater in Hollywood. And you know, figured out all this crazy stuff. And every week we were adding something new, you know, building on the week before. And so it's, it's always been that kind of part of my brain. Do you think of ever like bringing back that show now that, you know, that now that YouTube is more monetizable and, you know, you have even more experience and, you know, you've been doing kind of your original creations. So, that's an interesting, uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. But, um, there's an interesting thing going on. Like, I, I feel, I feel like you'll probably identify with a bunch of, a bunch of this, um, you know, like moving to Los Angeles and wanting to direct movies, you know, at some point in the mid to late two thousands, there was sort of this recognition of, the thing that I wanted didn't exist anymore. It's not that I wasn't going to make it. It wasn't that I wasn't going to be able to be a movie director. It was that being a movie director was not what it used to be. 
and right. and that I don't want what it has become. And that was a really tough thing because it's diff- there's one thing to sort of give up on your dream and that's a really sad and devastating and depressing thing. But that's not what this is. It, it's it's a re- recognition that your dream I mean, I'm, I seriously, I, I was making movies when I was 10. Like it was, it was all I ever wanted, you know. And Where are you from originally? Where did you move from? Uh, so lived in California since I was 10. Um, oh, so gotcha. a, a, effectively a California guy. But, hmm. you know, I, I, and, you know, none of my family's in the film in, or entertainment industry. But, you know, dad is, uh, he was a computer programmer and, you know, his brothers are computer programmers and my grandfather was an engineer. So very like, you know, technical family, but not necessarily entertainment, you know, uh, creatives. Right. Not storytellers by no. profession. No, <laughs> but, but the, you know, the sort of realization that movie directors are not very, I mean, there's, there's certainly a couple folk, couple guys at the very top, you know, it's not a, it's kind of a boys club and it's, there's not too right. many people at the top. Everyone below them is not miserable, but it's not, they're not doing, they're not doing what I want to do. And so there was kind of this like, you know, rudderless couple of years of kind of like, well, I guess I have to find a new dream. Uh, <laughs> and, and into that, into that sort of gap came and I knew I didn't want to be a commercial director. I knew that I didn't really want to be a music video director. I knew that I didn't necessarily want to do web video. Um, you know, like I, I knew what I didn't want and then right. sort of out of nowhere, this VR stuff came and it was like all of all, it was all of the stuff I loved. None of the stuff that I hated. I mean, in the very beginning, there was no, there was no, um, you know, live feed. So it was, it was, it was, you know, like all the stories of, of sort of filmmaking in the sixties and seventies, where it's like only the director and the DP get to put their eye on the eyepiece and see what, you know, see through the lens and maybe the producer, if it's a big enough producer, you know, (laughs) and, and then, you know, fast forward to the mid 2000 and, you know, it's video village and everyone with a, with a laptop is, is throwing out opinions. And right. you know, so, you know, VR sort of hit reset on a lot of things. There was no video tap. There was, you know, there was no live feed. The actors had to act and the, you know, the, the visual well, effects. Even, were if so there insanely is, even if there was a live feed, I feel like, you know, people, people who are new to VR, people who weren't like creators, maybe even now they still, they're like, you know, they have these like ogly eyes uh, and kind of uh, this, I don't know what to do with this, uh, you know, attitude that they're kind of looking for creators with a vision who have, you know, like, you know, who have the conviction to go in and say, this is what you do with VR. You know, like I I think a lot of people are still trying to, you know, crack this nut, you know, this. uh, Absolutely. No. And that's why I love it. It's, it's the, it's the great equalizer. You know, you might be a, 40 year veteran of the entertainment industry, but you know about as much of, about this as I do. You know? yeah. So it's like, yep. I, you know, in fact, I probably know more than you, but, but like, if nothing else, you know, it, it neutralizes decades of experience and forces people to just kind of humbly, you know, uh, approach the medium and go, okay, 
I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I exactly. do have talent in whatever area, you know, I have talent and I will apply that talent, but I'm not going to assume I know what I'm doing. And that humble attitude has been phenomenal. And, you know, it, it's, it's been great working with people who have that attitude. It's been great helping people gain that attitude. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just this great medium where it's everything I read about when I was in film school. You know, like the, I always, I always felt like film school was about, you know, the decades that existed before you were born that you will never get to, <laughs> you know, right. it was, it was like film was great before you were born, um, you know, and right. Like, how am I going to make the next Jaws? You know, yeah. good, luck, good luck with that. You know, it's, um, and, and like the, you know, I, I, I went into film school in 98 and that year, or, you know, within my, my freshman year, there was Fight Club and American Beauty. And the indie scene had sort of started to slow down a little bit. And then there was just nothing great for <laughs> the next, like, four years. And then we started to get good movies again eventually. You know, like Donnie Darko was pretty good and Neil right. Blow was pretty good. But, like, there was this period of, like, Hollywood kind of sucked the indie scene kind of collapsed and it was just, yeah. it, was, it was just kind of like a, a depressing, a depressing time. And, and I think we've kind of pulled out of it, but now we're in a different depressing time of superhero movies, which, you know, if, uh, you know, if you like superheroes, it's a great time to be creating, but you know, that, that's, I think that's, if you like superheroes, you're at the point where you're starting to not like them anymore because <laughs> Give them, you know. <laughs> I hope so. I do, I don't find them to be relatable. I've never, I've never had superpowers, so I find it really difficult to sort of sympathize with somebody who's invincible and can fly. You know, like I, I don't find their problems relatable. It's sort of like a rich yeah. person complaining. I don't know. I've always thought the beginning of Hancock was one of my favorite, like kind of yeah. first acts in in a superhero movie. I mean, I didn't like where it ended up going but and i know the script went through like you know huge you know huge changes at some point it wasn't apparently the the original screenplay for hancock from what i heard was like amazing and someone told me you have to you know you have to read it one day because it would have been like the perfect movie or something but you know it ended up so different but i really like the idea of like you know what would a real person that you know has superpowers you know be like you know not this kind of unbelievable you know, perfect human that you, you know, that, that most heroes are like, they're kind of forcing these flaws on them, but you never really buy it because, you know, they don't really act like <laughs> people. Well, it's like, it's like a, you know, it's like a billionaire with a limp. It's like, yeah, I mean, the limp sucks, but also your life rocks. So yeah, exactly. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know, like there's so many superhero movies where it's like, no, no, no. He's the thing is, he's a really relatable superhero, like Logan, you know, that was, that was, <laughs> That was a good movie, but right. like the parts about it that are good are not superhero moments, you know, and, and the superhero moments are, you're just kind of like, cool. So like you can heal yourself and your skeleton's made of metal and you have these claws and you can basically, you know, kill anyone you want. So these parts of the movie are pretty boring, but then there's these human right. moments, you know, you're like, ah, now it's a movie. But, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Superhero I tangent. <laughs> totally no every every podcast needs to have those right it's like it's part of the <laughs> hey they're, um, they're keeping the vfx industry 
funded. So there's, they're not all, uh, they're not all bad. Oh yeah. No, I mean, so many of my friends, you know, they owe their living to, uh, you know, to superheroes and, and that, you know, whole thing. I'm, I'm all for it, you know, I mean, for, you know, to a, to a certain extent, I wish there were more indie films though, you know, uh, you know, I, I have so much hope for VR. Like I, I really do like the, the, you know, there is sort of like, there's this thing where, you know, all the, the sort of eighties blockbuster directors that turned into kind of like the nineties, you know, big directors, right. They all went through the school of Corman, you know, and even James right. Gunn was a, was a trauma guy, but like, the the film industry and you know and the, all the indie darlings of the 90s you know Tarantino and Smith and you know and Soderbergh they there was a farm league you know like you could make a movie for 50 grand or 25 grand you could do El Mariachi you know and donate your body to science and <laughs> Is that what and, uh, Rodriguez did? He donated his body. Yeah, that's someone. Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, he did like medical um, trials. He was a oh. he was a medical guinea pig. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's terrifying. But <laughs> but there was a time you know there was a time that sort of ended in the late nineties where there was a farm league. There was there was a minor league. There was a right. place where creators, you know, writers, directors, and editors could fail because the, you know, hundred million dollars wasn't resting on their, sh- on their shoulders. And because they could fail, they could get better. And then when they were handed a hundred million dollars, they knew what they were doing and they did great things. And the film industry got rid of that. And I mean, a perfect example is John Carter of Mars. Those, those two directors got screwed. They were, you know, successful Pixar animation directors. So had Andrew Stanton that. and who else? I'm trying to remember the name of the other guys. Andrew Stanton and that. <laughs> we're both sitting at computers. We could be looking ah, this up. <laughs> um, but uh, let me take. So I always um, thought it was just Andrew Stanton, but I guess no. It was. It was. Uh, where are you? Oh my gosh! I I pulled up the the uh, the says, comics. It says screenplay by Andrew Standen and Mark Andrus. And yeah, so uh, to the best of my knowledge, um, well, they co-directed, but I think Andrew was was credited. Um, oh, I the, see. DJ doesn't like co-direction, um, but uh, they they were handed what was wasn't that budget like two hundred fifty million dollars or some stupid. It was a huge like budget. A huge budget. Yeah. But they, like, I don't look at it. They did not fail. They were set up to fail. And, you know, they, they really got screwed because they were not allowed. They, they needed to fail. They needed to make something for a million dollars. They needed to do something small and personal. They needed to do something that when it failed or didn't make money, it didn't matter. And all the directors helming these hundred, two hundred million dollar movies had that. James Cameron, Piranhas, you know, or Piranhas 2, you know, like there's Spielberg did, uh, um, oh, what was his, uh, the, the, the duel duel, you know, right. You know, like and he did a few episodes of Columbo, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. And a few things. Yeah. Um, it, but there's too much pressure at the, at the feature film level. They got rid of their farm league. They got rid of their ability to grow talent. Blumhouse has definitely done some good work to recreate, 
that sort of uh yeah give people like their first chance and like low ultra low budget more you know it was kind of like up and up to three hundred thousand at some point i'm sure it kind of went up it's up to five million now but still but still really small bets and low risk but the problem with that is it's it's genre um which is fine but like if 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 that's not your thing it's not like you know it's not like an entire sort of b film grindhouse indie film you know sort of it's 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 a more specific sort of this one producer will give you a shot um well i find it interesting because because standon actually did direct a few features but they were all animated at you know, on the yeah, Pixar. yeah, yeah, and it kind of also felt like, in a way, one of my one of my kind of peeves about uh, and you know um, John Carter was it felt like it was trying to be made as an animated film, but but it didn't like you know the medium didn't really allow for it. It kind of felt like the actors were beaten you know beaten to death <laughs> with like you know do it again and again and again like forever. <laughs> I think I think it's actually I don't know uh, you know the exact stories of behind the scene, but I know they've done a ton of reshoots and, and they yeah. went back and like, they, and in my, in my, my sort of, my guess is that there was sort of this uh, attempt at the beginning to almost like shoot reels and then cut it and see if it works and, you know, keep it. If not, then go back and reshoot it or rewrite and reshoot it kind of in the same vein of how you would go about doing an animated feature where you, you know, you do animatics and you cut them and you, and you test them out and you screen them and then you, go back to the you know back to the beginning but with actors it really just doesn't work the same way as with animated characters um, yeah well and, and it i think they i think there's definitely a, a big part of what i was saying about feature film directing not being what what i grew what it was you know when i was growing up is is that sort of micromanagement like studio it, it, you know a lot of people call it the save the cat mentality of, you know, sort of because I know what I'm talking about as a studio executive, I feel like I know what I'm talking about as a film director. And so because of that, you know, directing a movie is as much dealing with a board of directors, you know, yeah. as it is actually, you know, making something. And that, you know, I felt that way with, um, with, um, Jurassic World, in a way, it kind of felt like there was, there were like five people with very, you know, precious, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, screenwriting like moments that they all wanted to fit in there, and that's yeah. why you have like these all these setups that never get paid off, and you know, <laughs> these moments were like, why, you know, why do we have this scene at the beginning with him and his girlfriend if he's going to go, you know, and start hitting on every girl he sees on the island? Like, what's that about? Um, well, and you and you know, watching the movie as each of those moments came up, the person who was responsible for forcing that into the film was like, see, I fixed this movie. I, that, yeah. this, the, they, they didn't want this scene in the movie and I fought for it and it, <laughs> it wouldn't be the movie it is if, it, if I hadn't fought for it. Well, it's, totally. like, it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible way to create things, you know? And I, I think, um, I think I you're think, right. And, and this is a, this is a director that has had, you know, uh, at least one feature, you know, yeah. under his belt that was really successful with uh, safety not guaranteed. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, so to sort of loop it back to VR, I really do see a lot of opportunity for creatives, not just technicians, but you know, it's, it's a new medium. And because it's got that sort of equalizer 
effect where if you try to apply, if you try to treat it like cinema, you're going to make some very boring, immersive video. If you try to treat it like a video game, you're going to make kind of an interesting arcade cabinet. But if you treat it like a blank slate and try to figure it out and have a group around you of like mind, and if the money people sort of have an understanding of this is, this is virgin territory. And so it's experimental and, you know, it's going to be great, but it's not going to be what you think it's going to be or what I think it's going to be. It's going to be what we organically sort of iterate towards and discover. And I think that that is just, I'm just so excited, you know, like, like just every day working in this space is it's some of the best people in town and not just talent, but personality. It's, you know, it's, it's some of the sort of most creative canvas, I guess, to create in. And it's just, I don't know. It's a, it's a really, really, really exciting time to be alive. The only thing that I'm sad about is that I feel like the people who are going to really, really, really do incredible things in this space haven't really been born yet. And I don't know if I will get to see their work, you know, <laughs> like we'll do good things and foundational things. And I'm not saying anything that we're doing is pointless, but we're, you know, we're sort of laying, we're laying the foundation. And right. Well, you say it's very early days. Um, and what do you think is going to be kind of the threshold moment for, you know, for immersive media? I don't know that we know completely, honestly, you know, I, 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 did a talk a couple of weeks ago uh, sort of about adoption curves and how it was, <laughs> it was, uh, you, 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 you may need to bleep this out. Uh, the, the title of the talk was everybody needs to calm the fuck down. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was about sort of, um, there's, there's a lot of panic in VR and it's starting to be in AR and that, that panic is basically just unreasonable expectations. And so, In so about, research, about when it's going to be, when it's going to hit like mass market. Yeah. 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 Uh, and honestly, it's the same conversations, the same kind of like eye rolling, <laughs> annoying conversations that were happening in web video in 2005, six, seven, and eight, where, when you know, are we going to start making money? Monetization, 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 yep. monetization. How are we going to monetize? And, um, you know, the people making stuff, we rolled our eyes and we're like, I don't know but that's not our job. We're just going to make stuff. And, uh, you know, and the answer came along in 2011, 12, 13, and, you know, there's millionaires now and, yeah. two, you know, it's stabilized and, and it's, and it's all good. And so looking at VR in particular, and, and there's this sort of concept of like, well, it's going to adopt like video games or it's going to adopt like a uh, film or it will adopt like cell phones or, you know, th there's always these kind of conversations about like the, you know, you can look at this curve and, and just say that VR will adopt like that. And the problem with that is that adoption curves, as people normally look at them is from consumer release to mass adoption, mm. but it, it ignores the groundwork that happened before that. And so doing the research for this, you know, I was looking like, I, I actually had to sort of like put the numbers, you know, <laughs> on the page and, It's like, you know, people sort of talk about movies as about 100 years old, but Moybridge was 140 years ago. 
Um, oh, interesting. You know, and so cinema is 140 years old. And the first... Probably even go way back, right? I mean, uh, to theater almost. And oh yeah, well, and I'm only talking about like you know moving pictures there. You know, like the right. the foundations of that go all the way back. I mean, to the Greeks, you know, with you know theater and drama. And, but <laughs> but but just the the sort of like the technology of cinema. Um, you know, it was four decades before what people you know sort of think of the birth of cinema with the, you know, Lumiere brothers and Edison, but that was 40 years later, not, you know, not like four years later. And, right. you know, and the adoption curve on film, you know, is, is pretty long. And, you know, um, the, the common one too is the internet where there's sort of this concept that the internet came out of nothing. You know, Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet in 1989 and by the year 2000, it was, you know, worth billions of dollars. And it's like, no, like they were, they were connecting to computers in the fifties, you know, it right. took decades. And the first cell phone, a lot of people, like, I actually thought the first cell phone was 1989 for some reason. And that's kind of a fact that gets thrown around a lot. You know, it was like the first cell phone was in 89 and, and then, you know, by, uh, by the early two thousands, it was, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Everyone had a cell phone. And looking into it, it was like, no, actually, the Germans had wireless telephones on their military trains in 1918, 100 really? years ago. Yeah. And, but, you know, there was, a, there was a nationwide radio telephone network that had like 9,000 subscribers in the 50s and the 40s and 50s. And the first cell phone call was a decade before the, re the release of the first cell phone. Um, you know, in the, uh, I think the cell phone, I forget the dates. It was like early seventies, late seventies, I think. Um, so you think, you think the slow or, or the pace that it would, the pacing of, of what it would take for VR to become mainstream is, is mostly technologically kind of bound. So, uh, we're, we're looking at an unknown kind of number of years before technically yeah. we'll, we'll have the technology to, to have every person kind of own one and have it be, uh, affordable, and yeah. Uh, um, yeah. and 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 uh, you know, adoption curves have been accelerating. The adoption of film is much slower than the adoption of the cell phone, but um, you know, it's decades for sure. And you know, we're we're kind of in year five right now. Like, if you say, and right. but you know, foundationally, VRs have been around since the fifties as well. So. There, and it's sitting on top of the internet and video games and, you know, and film. And so it's not an easy equation. You, you, you know, I can't say how long it's going to take in the same breath that nobody else can say how fast it will go. So, yeah, you know, it's to me, it's like, calm down. It's not a bubble just because we didn't hit mass adoption in four years of effort, <laughs> but we've, you know, we've accomplished great things already. And, you know, even, shooting something and, and doing posts in 360 today is an order of magnitude easier and cheaper than it was four years ago. And that yep. trend is going to continue. Real-time rendering is getting better. Cell phone screens are getting better. Uh, cell phones are now getting water cooling. They're getting bigger batteries. Four, you know, 5G is coming and VR is a huge part of what's going to be, you know, filling those pipes. It's totally 
it's it, you know it's moving forward and it's it's going at the speed it will and should so you're optimistic and what 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 would you say to like investors that have kind of put a lot of money and hope in VR in the last five years and you know we're expecting to see something <laughs> blow up and you know do you think those are you know they're still hopeful they're still um, I think to... I think that there are investors that are treating VR like the long game that it is and they will be billionaires you know or continue to be billionaires um, right. you know and possibly be trillionaires. There are investors that are treating VR like a mature market and expecting multiple returns, you know, in a two to three to five year time frame. And that's, it's unfair. It's, it's, it's unreasonable and it's actually unfair because it sets up a scenario in which everybody loses. You're going to lose your money. The people you invested in are going to kill themselves to try to deliver on an impossible you know, demands. And it's going to be something that everyone looks at and says, see, I told you it was a bubble. It's, <laughs> it's collapsing, you know, like VR is already in free fall. It's like, no, no, it's not. It's the opportunists and the, the gamblers are inevitably failing. And the people who are, you know, putting their heads down and doing the hard work are doing just fine. And progressing at the speed that any rational human being would say they should be progressing at. And it's going to be amazing. And everyone that figures out how to make this stuff will be very successful, you know, creatively and financially. Right. But I don't know when, you know, it might be decades. It might be. Um, I, th I think, um, I think it's a very expensive endeavor. And so there's this desire to either find money that doesn't care about a short-term return or find money that, you know, has, there's, you know, there's a lot of location-based stuff happening right now. There's, there's sort of a, a desire to find business models that work and that's fine. And, and I think that's, that's valid. Um, you know, and, and I think there is the ability to get a return on your investment, but you're not going to be making Uber money. You're not going to be, you know, right. making yeah. Facebook money, you know, like Facebook was the third social network. You know, I, I liked, I liked Friendster. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite. I hated MySpace and I begrudgingly went to Facebook. You it's know, funny. I was, a, I was a fan of MySpace for a while until I started seeing what people, you know, do with uh, freedom <laughs> <laughs> and, and how dreadful it can become. Uh, my first reaction to Facebook was like, oh my God, it's so limiting and, and kind of, you know, um, a bit big brotherish, you know, everybody has to be, you know, wear, wear the same colors, right. And it's kind of uniform, but you know, I can't looking back, you know, he was right. I <laughs> can't, can't, uh, can't deny it. <laughs> I, I wonder. Glitter I, bomb you, gifts. Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. No, I was like the glitter bomb gifts. Oh Yeah. <laughs> MySpace, yeah, that was the worst. <laughs> oh my god, I, I have you know my my I'm still partially blinded by some of the things I've seen there. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> color things, color schemes, stars. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think. I mean, I think your your kind of uh, prediction on on where VR might be heading and and or at least the advice to financiers to kind of have a, a longer game plan in mind when they when they 
put their money into this is very smart. I mean, there's a lot of things that excite me. What, what excites you in VR right now? What do you think are you know, the next uh, breakthroughs that we're about to have? So I'm, I'm, so I'm really bullish on a few things and they're not related to each other. They're, they're really separate pieces of the puzzle. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with the rollout of the consumer headsets. Like, you know, I, I think it's pretty amazing what you can do for $400 right now. Um, and the location based space is one that I'm personally really interested in, in creating and, and also, I think that's where a lot of the money is going. And it makes, you know, call it VR arcades or in activations or installations. It makes a lot of sense because you don't have to sort of create a product that will run on, you know, the vast majority of PCs. You can create something that works on the PCs you bought and you don't have to worry about figuring out how to fit it and, you know, fit the file size in a reasonable download. You can, you know, put a RAID in there and, like I've had conversations where it was like, yeah, you know, if if we were to use this technology, you know, we're talking about like terabytes per minute. Yeah. It's like, cool, awesome. That sounds perfect. I'll just get a raid. <laughs> so you know, that, that's that's great. And so I'm I'm really bullish on on location based um, VR. And then um, I'm also personally, I've 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 done a lot of 360 work. I've done a lot of high end 360 work. Um, and there's a lot about it that's very frustrating and we've been pushing 180 you know forever just trying to anybody that'll listen you know it's basically like the thing you want to make would be better in 180 and the conversation is always show me something in 180 so so um so i uh, about a month ago I i shot a short film that is partially me testing out some theories i have about sort of writing and directing and, and, and acting, um, sort of in for immersive versus film or, or theater. And it's, it's, but it's also, so it's, it's definitely like, you know, a director's piece and a, a put some theories into action, but it's also like, I just need something that I can point to and say, right. there, do you want that? <laughs> How about that? Now let's go make stuff. Cause I, I, I'm, I'm really in love with 180. It, like I'm, I'm deeply in love with 180. Um, Isn't YouTube doing something? Uh, YouTube 180 now, like uh, yeah, kind of uh, YouTube and Facebook uh, just days ago, like two days ago, I think on Friday they just launched um, uh, VR 180 support. So it's stereo side by side 180, um, and it solves so. Many, it's just you know I, I can't. We're gonna need another hour if we talk about it because <laughs> it's 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 you know it's something that um, like the the quick the quick hit list is that um, the vast majority of people watching immersive video are not watching it in a headset and so they're watching mono on a laptop or a, you know on the screen of their phone. Right. Um, the people who are watching in a headset don't move their heads very much at all, yeah. and so um, so I call 180 immersive enough. Um, in that, yes, you turn your head and you see an edge of frame, but most people don't, don't turn their heads. Um, so at the end of the day, you can quadruple the resolution, um, or cut your file size down to a quarter, um, and have the same number of pixels get seen or the same degrees of view get seen. Um, and to me in 360, you know, 360 is really good for big, you know, vistas, you know, like right. the top of a mountain or, 
you know, some really complex, beautiful location, kind of master shots, you know, in, yeah. in traditional cinema, like, you know, the master wide, the establishing shot is, is a great use of 360. And I certainly think there's like action sequences in which, you know, like the opening of Saving Private Ryan would be the best in 360. It would be incredible. Um, so those, those types of things, I absolutely think 360 is great at them, but dialogue scenes or, you know, scenes in which you, you would like the viewer to have a little bit of focus. Um, 180 is great for that. It, it sort of enforces a, you know, a, a, a viewing direction and you can have a body, you know, bodies don't work in 360. Right. Because the headless horseman effect where you look down and there's a, headless horseman and you're looking down the neck hole and you know, it's facing the wrong way and it doesn't feel like your body. It feels like it's floating like two feet below you. And yeah, you know, it's the wrong race, the the wrong gender, the, you know, it's, it's not moving its hands. Just everything about a body doesn't work in 360, but it actually works in 180 because there's an edge of frame and the body leaves frame and your mind sort of, when you see the edge of frame just goes, Oh, there's an edge of frame. Don't look that's there. What, yeah. Or that's what my body usually is. Cause you don't like spend time looking at your own body most of the time. Yeah. Unless you're, yeah. unless you got some issues. Um, yeah. So I'm very bullish on it. I'm, I'm, you know, screaming from the mountaintops that that's, that's what we should be making for a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that's 360 should be 180. That's okay. And what else? I mean, it, it sounded like you have a few more, uh, like kind of exciting <sighs> technology. Those are, well, okay, so location-based. So yeah, location. The, the, my hit list of stuff that I think is where the the money should go right now, and and I mean the the money to make stuff. It should be location-based right. and 180 with a little bit of 360. Um, looking forward, um, and I'm talking also. I'm talking as a as a sort of film side of things, not a video game side of things. Right. You know, the VR games are great. I'm just not a gamer. I, I, I play video games to keep up on, on what's going on, but I'm not a gamer and I'm a, you know, I've got a baby. I'm a, I'm a dad. So video games are, are not high on my radar, but they are doing very well and they're right. doing some really cool work. And I think, you know, they've got a great future. It's just not, it's not the medium I, I naturally gravitate towards. Um, so kind of looking forward, the stuff that I'm actively sort of personally making sure that I understand and, and you know, call it R&D, but it's, it's more training, like self-training, like getting, getting used to it as a, as a creator. I'm really excited about photogrammetry and LiDAR and, um, and sort of combining them with HDR to, to photographically capture an environment that has been set decorated and lit professionally and you know is is not a 3d model that was created in a computer right um, um or or an actual location um i, I think that you're thinking of that with it with like uh real-time kind of desktop vr in mind yeah I, look as soon as the audience arrives the audience has not arrived um, as soon as they do actually arrive in, in, you know, sustainable large numbers that are willing to pay for content when they arrive, we may still be making 360 and 180 video and they may enjoy that. But as soon as they've played enough games where they can walk around and pick stuff up and 
jump off of buildings and, you know, do whatever they want. As, as soon as you make the viewer or, you know, a user and, and show them that they can be a god, the immersive video is really going to be unappealing. And so right. we, need to, we need to start sort of, you know, if, if we want to survive uh, sort of the more narrative-minded folks, the, the more kind of traditional entertainment folks, if we're going to survive long-term in, in VR, we need to be doing volumetric video. We need to be doing motion capture. We need to be doing photogrammetry and LIDAR. We need to be doing light fields. We need to be learning you know, real-time rendering. We need to be doing, you know, sort of work with interactivity. Um, and I'm, I'm trying real hard to, to be one of those people. And, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in unity and I'm, I'm sort of trying to be as, as versed and conversant in it, all of it as I can and know who the players are and, and try their stuff out and learn sort of like what the pros and cons are. I don't think any of it is near term in terms of, I don't think 360 is going to die next year and be oh. replaced by light fields. I think it's, you know, 360 is going to take a while and 180 is going to take a while. And it's and in that time, you know, light fields will get better. Light fields are just, they're not, you know, they're, they're lab technology. Right. They're, you know, they're, they're really I've worked on a project just that, that used light field. Well, not us, but we, we did this thing for the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle. Um, yeah. And um, not our experience. We were one of four experiences that kind of launched this uh, holodome thing. It's a yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah the holodome. Sphere. Yeah. Yeah. So ours was uh, the sci-fi one. It's called uh, Escape from Death Planet. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've, is, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Oh, cool. So it's, it's fully CGI. I mean, we, we've had the, we, we went the easy route, you know, it's all CGI, like, you know, with a little bit of green screen, you know, humans in it. But, uh, um, the other one, I think they did something with Justin Timberlake, which was mostly, uh, him on a green screen dancing and like, uh, also CG, uh, you know, CG, uh, environments. I think, um, Framestore worked on it, if I'm not mistaken. And they shot the whole thing with Lightfield. And I'm not sure why. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, they worked with Lytro. I don't want to say, I mean, I ha- actually haven't seen it. I was there, and I, but, you know, I was there for a little, you know, uh, a very short while, and I only had a chance to look to see one of the experiences. So, obviously, I went to see mine because that was my <laughs> only chance to actually experience it uh, yeah, the right way. Um, but there's, I was very interested and curious, you know, to see what, what why, you know, why did he use Lytro? I mean, given that the the final product is basically like a 2d projected thing on a, on a 360 dome. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had high, high hopes for Lytro. I mean, I, I, you know, hats off for them to like, you know, stepping into, into that kind of extremely cutting edge technology that hasn't really been, you know, ever, you know, tested to, to the point of, you know, to, to prove its kind of purpose, I think. Yeah. And, but it's, I mean, it's very sad that Lytro folded, but the technicians from Lytro are at Google working with, you know, Google's Lightfield group, which, you know, has Paul DeBevic and a bunch of other really, really smart, clever people, you know, that Lytro died because of, because the VCs forced them to, to do, to go for the unreasonable for, right. you know, short-term return. 
They, they needed to hit market with yeah. some kind of product that people would pay for. But that wasn't what Lytro was. Lytro was long-term R&D. And now they're at a company that will sort of foster that and, and be okay with, you know, maybe it takes a decade. Because the... You talk about Google. Google. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a, in a weird way, Lytro folding might actually have been the best thing for Lytro because the... You know, the folks went over to Google where they'll get, they no longer have to worry about being fundraisers and satisfying, you know, board of directors and a bunch of unreasonable VCs. Now they get to do what they've always wanted to do, research light field technology. And yeah, you know, I, I, I think it'll be, it'll be okay. It's, it's sort of like a short term sad thing, but it's a long term great thing, you know, right. and all this, all this tech you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of funny, but like a 360 camera rig is a light field array. It's array? a sparse, yeah. yeah it's, it's a sparse light field array, but it's it's a ball of cameras. And what would a light field sphere be? A right. ball of cameras. So we're not we're not you know it. It's like multiple trains in in parallel that are going to merge at some point. Right. You know, all the 360 stitching and optical flow analysis and, you know, all this, all this crazy work that's been put into removing parallax from, <laughs> from a camera array. Ironically, is, yeah. <laughs> is literally this, the same code you need to create in between POVs for light field. Right. So, you know, so it's, it, it's okay. It's, it's like, just give it time. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, it has to sit, you know, it has to sit overnight. It's, it's got to rise. <laughs> I feel like like 90, probably 99% of people who listen to this are, are asking this, what the hell is light field? Cause I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people are, you know, we're talking about technology that, you know, it's, it's really hard. To, I mean, most people haven't actually seen, seen it in action. I mean, but, but the idea is basically to imagine like a mirror, right? I mean, and, and when you move your head, the, 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 the image that, you know reflects from that mirror changes based on your head so like a light field um screen is would be practically like a mirror wouldn't it uh where you could like move around it and and look at the image from every different angle you choose essentially the the way it took me a long time to understand what the heck it was and then it took me even longer to be able to like explain what i what what it was in my head. And the only way that I've been able to explain it to like my wife is a light field is a whole bunch of cameras. And when you're in a headset or looking at a screen, it's basically picking, it's like a camera switcher and it's picking which pixel from which camera to put into your left eye and into your right eye. So it's kind of like having like, you know, like a TV broadcast with a hundred cameras and there's just a smart little dude who's switching between cameras as you move around so that you're you're sort of just looking through the perspective of the different cameras. Oh, that's a um, good way to put it, yeah. And obviously reductive, but <laughs> but it's right. you know, but you know, that's a big problem. There's, you know, the there was a, a tech company that I won't name that uh was working on a light field and they told me their first sort of 360 light field that they created that was really fantastic. It was one petabyte of raw data. <laughs> and then 
after a year of research, they got it down to 500 terabytes and that's one frame. Oh my God. Um, and that was in, that was in early 2015. Yeah. So they'd already been working on the problem for a year or two. And, you know, we're three years later now, I'm sure they're down, you know, th- to the dozens of terabytes, <laughs> but, <laughs> but these are, these are future problems, you know, these are like, um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about 180 is it's possible to do really great things today that look great on the headsets that we have today. If you compare it to where we're going to be in five years, it's really primitive and ugly, but you know, so is light field. So is real time rendering. So is, you know, volumetric video. It's all really rough and ugly. So you can either spend millions of dollars on these future technologies, or you can spend, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on 180 and and at the end of the day actually end up at the same place Hmm. because you know the audience (laughs) the audience doesn't handicap the technology the audience doesn't go well i know it looked like crap but it was volumetrically captured so (laughs) (laughs) you know it, it either looks like crap or it doesn't you know the number one comment when somebody tries vr for the first time is why can i see the pixels and that yep. has nothing to do with anything. That's you know that doesn't have to do with capture, compression, rendering, you know, processing power. That's just screens and GPUs. Yep. So, you know, it's all just it's all going to take time, and we just need to we just need to focus on the thing. My attitude the last few years has been nothing that we create right now will be remembered or will be seen on a long enough timeline. It will not, you know, we're not creating the sort of cinematic high watermarks, but what we are doing is learning how to do that so that when there is an audience and the technology is figured out a little bit better, that we're not sort of starting at square one. We're actually off to the races and, you know, we're not Andrew Stanton getting handed $250 million. <laughs> we're... James Cameron getting handed $450 million. But it sounds you know? like from, from your perspective, once things are going to actually like work well and like you can, you know, as you say, be off to the races, you're going to be uninterested at that point. You're going to like look for the next, you know, <laughs> for the next technology to be, you know, to have 40 years of prep. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I mean, honestly, maybe. I, I hope not. I hope that I can settle down and I hope that I can, <laughs> I can dig in and, you know, I, I definitely have had a career of cutting edge technology and moving on once it becomes commoditized a little bit. But I do, I do I'm just really enjoying making stuff in this space, and I, I do, I do hope that you know um, I don't just chase the new hot technology. You know, project to project, it would be very nice to just kind of sit down and, you know, do something, do really refine and perfect something instead of just figure out how to make it work. So do you find you have a, a good balance nowadays of like both problem solving on a technical level and also being creatively kind of in charge and, and trying to tell your story? I think so. Um, I think the only hesitation I have is that it depends on where the money is coming from. Um, there are, are 
things that I'm working on and have done recently that are insanely creatively and, and sort of creatively rewarding and, and they scratch the technical itch. Um, and then there's like, like what? Like, so, uh, spent the majority of last year directing five animated, um, CG 360 films, like art films for the city of Las Vegas, um, cool. kind of partnered with five different artists. So each film is like two and a half minutes long or so. And it's their vision of Las Vegas in their aesthetic, but the artists are not, um, animators ex- except for one. So, um, there's Insa who's a graffiti artist in the UK. Fafi is a French muralist. Um, Arimas Batista is a Brazilian illustrator. Um, Signal Noise is a Canadian illustrator. And then we also worked with Beeple who is an American motion graphics and, and CG animation guy. Um, so kind of Beeple definitely didn't need, you know, didn't need very much. CG help. But, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but the other four, it was very much kind of being there, being their hands and, and sort of working with them from the first, you know, from the narrative all the way through um, sort of the style and the aesthetic and just kind of uh, led a team um, with uh, uh, a guy named John Fragamani who um, was at uh, Murata with me. He brought me over to Murata and now he's at digital domain. Um, and he and I kind of put a team together and, and ran it this ad hoc studio. And it was, it was phenomenal. It, I mean, it was really incredible. And then since then, um, you know, there's projects that I'm working on right now that are a little bit more corporate funded. And, you know, when, when something is corporate funded or sort of marketing focused, there's, there's a little bit of sort of on the creative side, you kind of have to find, find the things that excite you and stay excited about those things because it's not your, you're not making your movie. You're, you know, you're, you're being hired to, to do a job. And so those projects, I try to focus on skill sharpening more than, more than sort of like creative. It's less about, you know, making, the, sto- the st- telling the story I want to tell and more making sure that they get what they want and that I at least learn something or get to practice something or, you know, totally. get, get better at something. So, yeah, I, I think there's a mix. There's still, and I don't anticipate, like I'm, I think it would be, I, I would be fooling myself if I thought that I will hit a point in which all I do all day is creatively fulfilling stuff. You know, the, the things I like the the crayons that I like to, to draw with are really expensive. And because of that, I can't just sort of be an indie VR maker. You know, I do need a budget. Um, you know, I, I can't do it all myself. And the, the folks and the hardware that's needed are not cheap. And so I, I think I'm always going to have to balance, you know, between either corporate or marketing um, interests and, and hopefully, you know, getting some wins, (laughs) getting, getting, you know, finding people that just kind of want to make something cool or want to make something artistic and, you know, and really enjoying the heck out of those and, and not letting the, the money jobs, um, you know, 
bring me down because I, I think there's there's exciting stuff to be done even if you're doing sort of like you know a 360 behind the scenes for something or you know like a an interactive thing you know activation for south by that is loosely based on a movie you know um gotcha, yeah is that are you talking about the Mr. Robot thing or something else? No, no, no. I'm, I'm speaking totally generically. Oh, um, <laughs> no, it's, that's that's the kind of work that's floating out there. Is there's a lot of sort of um, ad agencies know that VR is buzzy, um, but they're not looking to sort of pour and a blank check amount of money into it. They want right. to sort of you know be it's able to sit say we did vr and not, you know not lose everything doing so yeah i'm sure i'm sure there's a bunch of those but in in another way i mean vr does seem like you know a, uh, like you say it's kind of this um area where where a lot of people are willing to you know they admit they don't know it you know it's like yeah and and they are looking for people that have experience in it uh, as little as possible, like, well, as much as possible in these early days to like, you know, try out uh, to show them what's possible in the, in the field, maybe try to tr- stretch it out. So I think like, I mean, I would say I totally agree and, and understand how choosing to be in this field or, or to become a creative and a director, you know, or whatever word fits in, in this scenario <laughs> in this field is, is very smart. If you're looking for any kind of creative independence um, or, creative um you know experimentation if you want um yeah do you ever do you ever feel though that you know if if you would have gotten a chance now to like do something traditional i'm I'm assuming you wouldn't turn it down necessarily right um you know it, it it would really depend on what it is but i think i've learned a lot about myself you know through vr in terms of um I, you know, I, I guess when I discovered VR and I started trying to understand how it works and how to work within it, I realized sort of, I realized that there were all these pieces of me and interests that I had that, that make a lot of sense in this space and don't make sense in the traditional space that I was kind of trying to be a part of. Like, I don't, I don't know I think I can direct live action and animation and, and sort of, you know, call it video game immersive experiences better than I can direct a movie. And it's, it's because the things that I like doing are better in VR and, and in AR. Like I, I really, I've always enjoyed instead of sort of traditional coverage, I've always enjoyed long take, you know, single take if possible, master, you know, highly choreographed. I loved Boogie Nights when it came out, you know, like uh, right. I was so jealous of Children of Men. <laughs> you know, I, I've i always really, really loved that stuff. And VR is that. Like right. that, that, that is 360 and 180 video. It's, you know, and so it's less that I would turn down something traditional and more that I think I'm better in, in VR. Like I, I think that my, I think that my skills are actually more, I didn't realize I get like, I had this realization maybe in like 2015 or 2016 that 
I didn't realize that I've been training for VR because I wasn't. But if, if you looked at sort of my trajectory, it kind of looks like I was training for VR. <laughs> you know, like, you like I like love long takes and, uh, and play a lot, a lot with like blocking and. Uh, yeah. I mean, even way back in high school, like I, you know, like a lot of the uh, stupid, you know, videos I did with friends in high school were insanely choreographed single long takes and not because I was imitating, you know, f- f- filmmakers that I admired. It was just because that's how my brain worked. But even, you know, like uh, for years, uh, after college, my roommates and I would do a haunted house every year, like a really elaborate, big haunted house. And, and I, I, as soon as sort of VR kind of came on the horizon, I realized that it's the same skill, like making a, making shooting an immersive video is the same skill set as making a haunted house. Um, but it might be drama or comedy instead of horror but it's the right. same kind of environmental design. And um, we were, we did the, the sort of call it the graphics package for USA Today for their show virtually there. And we spent two weeks kind of figuring out how to design in 360 and on a like intellectual level, not enough, not in a like what buttons do we click level. And it finally clicked when we, we realized that sort of the way to approach design in in immersive content is the same design thinking that goes into building an installation yeah where you need to worry about you know how do people enter how do they exit what do they see where do they stand how big is it what color is it what does it sound like you know it it's it's more than just sort of like what's your favorite font and you know how do you uh how do you animate text in after effects it's it's, it's design, it's environmental design, it's, it's experiential design. And I think that was a big aha moment. And on the directing front, it's kind of been a similar thing of it's not film, it's not theater, it's somewhere in between and also neither. Right. It's more like how do you convince or how do you um, beg people to walk, you know, to, to kind of walk, go through the experience in the way that you have in mind but you can't really control them right because you can't yeah. lock them into a frame you can't uh you can't kind of restrict their time if if it's a if it's a real-time environment they could choose to wait here for a few seconds and then go and you know a lot of things have to you have to kind of roll with the punches as as a as a creator you have to you know just allow allow exploration to happen in in a way that yeah doesn't really doesn't really happen when you when you make a traditional film. Yeah, there's there's a I don't know if you've heard this quote from Spielberg before he made Ready Player One. Somebody asked him about VR, and his quote about VR was, you know, it's a it's a very dangerous medium for us directors um, because you know we are we are giving up control to the audience. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I love that quote because it stinks of old man. <laughs> you know, like, like it, it, it's like, when I heard that quote, I was like, awesome. So he's not going to be competition for me. Um, <laughs> totally. you know, because it's, I mean, yeah, if you're a control freak and you want to make a movie, yeah, VR is a ter- like, yes, yes, you're right. Yes. <laughs> and that's why I love it <laughs> because there is no, there is no frame. There is no sort of, you know, um, 
auteur. There is no kind of, you know, director. There's an experience designer. There's a, you know, there's a person who, like, I think theme parks get, or theme park rides get a lot of crap for, for, for not being very good. And I look at theme parks as sort of the closest thing to what we want to do. Oh, so yeah. instead of instead of saying like, oh, you know, oh that that three you know, that VR experience was just, it was it was on rails. It was like Star Tours. It was like an amusement park ride. It was really boring. It was like, yeah, no, I agree with you. You're right. But let's look at what they do in amusement parks that works and let's and is effective. And let's ignore the big loud failures or, you know, the really cheesy lines and like I think, I think the movie Gravity is an amusement park ride. Oh, completely. It's not a movie, you yeah. know. And so, if you if you take those lessons and you, you know, like there's there's this. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it's Disneyland here or if it's Six Flags. It's Six Flags. It's the Mummy roller coaster. Um, or no, sorry, Universal. That's Universal. Mummy roller yeah. Coaster. yeah, they do a they do a really smart thing in the line that's just like oh that's brilliant i'm gonna keep that there's just a hole in the wall that says something like don't put your hand in here and if you put your hand in there it like does this loud blast of air that scares the hell out of you (laughs) it's a stupid little thing but it's like yeah let's look at that let's let's you know let's let's look at those the things that they are doing that are 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 effective and you know are incredible and and there's a reason people spend 150 bucks a ticket to go to amusement parks, you know, like there's a reason for that. So let's, let's look at that and figure it out. Yeah, no, I'm, I totally hear you. And, and I mean, gravity, what a, what a film. If, if you think it's, it feels like a virtual reality, right? Even though like, you don't have the, the, the freedom of movement that you would, you know, if it was really a VR experience, but it's like such a, you know, real time, you know, very few cuts, um, yeah yeah they have to make a version of that in vr <laughs> one day. i and and it will it will kill people will love it you know like it, it, that movie like i saw it you know imax stereo you know like a i think it was real d probably you know like saw it as as ideal as i think you can in terms of projection and sound and it was a blast and man is that not a movie it is so if you watch that on a movie on an airplane or on a screener dvd oh no there's no reason to see it but as an imax stereo you know big screen experience that that is a high water mark it's an oh i wish that i wish that that's what superhero movies were you know like i would love it if that was you know if people just be like screw it we're just gonna make gravity it'd be amazing (laughs) Yeah, my my. It's funny that you mentioned airplane. Watching it on an airplane, I actually read the script of Gravity like a year before it came out on an airplane, and I just remembered, you know, finishing the script. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't keep, you know, keep it off my hands as reading it, like at record speeds. And then I I finished, and I was like, realizing that I'm like I don't know twenty thousand feet up in the air in, in this like machine, and I'm like. Holy crap! That's not the right script to read when you're on, on an airplane. You know? <laughs> that's awesome. 
Because all I could think of is like, you know, something's happening and we suddenly, you know, lose. It was like the thing about gravity is how it ends. It's like, you know, she walks on, on ground, you know, on solid ground. And like you end up with this kind of almost catharsis, like, oh, my God, I'm thankful for the ground, you know, for, for, for gravity, you know, like f- for keeping me on the ground and like, you know, allowing me, giving me friction and things that I can like, you know, so I can move around, uh, you know, without floating into death essentially totally and then i was like finishing getting to that point in the end you know getting to the point where she's walking on ground like thank god she's on ground and i'm like looking around myself and i'm like oh my god i'm like i can't wait to land (laughs) uh, (laughs) yeah no i i i I had a great experience watching that movie like i i you know I, i i i wish i wish that that's what more movies were like you know, I think that there's movies that should just be a ride like that, that try to be cine- yeah. cinema, and you know, it's like don't 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 try to just make gravity. Just it's okay. Some things can be fun. You know, some things can just be stupid. Don't try to be smart. Don't try to, you know, don't try to create some deep, you know, thought, think piece. Just it's okay you're blowing things up that's what your movie is it's okay so just blow it up real good it's okay <laughs> totally i'll let you go it's uh it's really late and thank you so much for you know taking the time and sitting and talking to me um of course before before we kind of wrap it up i wanted to kind of ask what, what's uh what's a good way for people that are listening to it uh to this to reach out and or to you know to find you online so Pretty much everywhere online, I'm AV Club Vids. So, you know, Twitter, Instagram, it's pretty much everywhere. Um, but uh, my website that has a lot of the the weird stuff that I've been up to um, is my name with a hyphen, andrew-cochran.com or andrew-cochran.com. And Cochran is uh, it's pronounced like Johnny Cochran, but it's got an E at the end. That throws a lot of people. Um and then the uh, currently the AV Club TV, um, which was the the improv group that turned into a web video group, that is um, that is also redirecting to Andrew Cochran. So that's where my stuff's at. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, you know, have a great night. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. This has been good. This was episode six of the Post Post Podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Uh, Once again, don't forget to follow us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or subscribe to our uh, SoundCloud and uh, Stitcher channels. Um, And if you have any notes or any suggestions for other uh, guests, don't don't hesitate. Just leave us a comment. Uh, And uh, we'll see you next week with Episode 7 of the Post Post Podcast.